Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, quantum supremacy. And some new fossil mammals. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. First up on the show today, reporter Benjamin Thompson has been diving into the quantum world to find out about a significant milestone for computing. Listeners, today I want to talk about quantum computers, which are rather different from the so-called classical computers, like the laptop you might use at work. The fundamental building blocks that these classical computers use to run programs are called binary digits, or bits, and these can be set to one or zero. The equivalent unit in a quantum computer is called a quantum bit, or qubit. These can be in a state of zero or one, but they can also be in states that capture aspects of both zero and one simultaneously. It's long been hoped that the qubit's strange properties could be harnessed to allow quantum computers to perform certain kinds of tasks a lot quicker than classical computers. There's also the thought that quantum computers have the potential to make calculations that are too complicated for classical computers to do at all. This idea is known as quantum supremacy, but despite the efforts of research teams around the world, actually demonstrating quantum supremacy has been really tricky for a number of reasons. Quantum supremacy is difficult to achieve because you have to build quantum hardware, the quantum computer to run it on, that's pretty capable. This is John Martinez from Google and the University of California, Santa Barbara in the U.S., and you need to have a certain size, a number of quantum bits that right now is hard. And you also have to build qubits where you can control them really well. And they have very low error rates. And the combination of those two things is kind of hard to do. While demonstrating quantum supremacy may be hard to do, John and his colleagues claim to have done just that. You might have heard some rumblings about this a month or so back when a copy of their paper leaked online, but this week the team have published their findings in Nature, 
showing, for the first time, a quantum computer that's able to accomplish a very specific task that the world's most powerful supercomputer is unable to. So, how do they do it? Well, they use some pretty impressive hardware. At their quantum computer's heart is a processor called Sycamore, which contains 53 individually controllable qubits that run operations called logic gates. The computer is centered around a chip that we make in a clean room, like you would make for a standard electronics chip. The difference is, is that the computer is made out of uh, superconducting materials. We connect this quantum computer chip, which is operated at very low temperatures, about you know one uh, one hundredth of a Kelvin. So this is about uh, one part in 10,000th of room temperatures. Uh, we then connect uh, wires to that to some room temperature control electronics, which put on, on some various electrical signals and microwave pulses, which actually control the quantum computer to do the logic aids. To see if this system could achieve quantum supremacy, the team set it a task that centers on a kind of quantum random number generator. The 53 qubits in the quantum chip were fed a series of random operations, and each qubit gave back either a 0 or a 1, giving a string of 53 zeros and 1s in total. Now, there are a huge amount of different combinations of these strings, 2 to the power 53 in fact, but distribution of them is not random. Due to something called quantum interference, some combinations are more likely than others. You can think of it like this. Imagine you have a six-sided die that is slightly weighted in favour of one number. If you roll the die once, you could get any number. However, if you roll it a million times, you'll be able to see the bias caused by the weighting and be able to figure out the probability of each number coming up. This is similar to what the computer did. By repeatedly sampling the results, it was able to give the probability distribution of each of the 53 long strings of ones and zeros. Although this is very demanding computationally, the Sycamore-based quantum computer was able to take it in its stride, doing a million samples in 200 seconds to get an idea of the probability distribution. As Harmut Naven, who's also from Google, explains, this is quite a bit quicker than they estimated that the world's top-rated supercomputer, known as Summit, would take to accomplish the same task. It was... 200 seconds on the Sycamore chip versus 10,000 years on the Summit machine. 10,000 years for a supercomputer with over 9,000 CPUs and over 25,000 GPUs. Obviously, running a supercomputer for 10,000 years and waiting to see what the results are isn't really feasible. The team actually came up with this value by getting classical computers to simulate simpler versions of the quantum random number generator and extrapolating the result out to work out how long the full version would take. There are suggestions, though, that this time frame might not necessarily be accurate. In a very recent blog post, IBM claimed that far from taking 10,000 years, with some adjustments, a classical computer could perform the same task in just 2.5 days. This, of course, needs to be tested, and it's a debate that's sure to continue. Whether or not Google's quantum computer is capable of doing something that a supercomputer can't, or just doing it much quicker, what does this result actually mean? The task that the research team chose doesn't really have any practical use, and it was chosen specifically because it's tough for classical computers to do. 
It will be a while before quantum computers are able to work on useful problems, but William Oliver from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US, who's written a News and Views article on the work, thinks it's an important step along the road. I think that this is a very important milestone. It shows that a quantum computer can be controlled to a degree that it can outperform the best classical computers, and it can do so using this universal set of gates, which in principle can be used to make arbitrarily complex and, and in fact, interesting algorithms. William likens the current work to the Wright brothers' first demonstration of powered flight. That event didn't change the world overnight, but it showed what was possible. He thinks there's still a ways to go until quantum computers are ready for prime time. With quantum computers, this is just the beginning. The next steps are going to be to develop algorithms that are commercializable. They solve real problems that we care about. And then in parallel, we have to develop and demonstrate quantum error correcting codes that allow us to improve the robustness of these quantum processors just by adding redundancy into the system. And and this is done with, with classical systems and we need to learn how to do it with quantum systems. That was William Oliver from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US. Head over to nature.com where you can read his News and Views article. You'll also find the paper by John Martinez and Hartmut Naven in the same place. Later on, we'll be finding out about a new gene editing tool. That's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for some record-breaking research highlights with Anna Nagel. If you've ever run barefoot over hot sand, you can probably relate to Saharan silver ants, which have to traverse the over 60 degree Celsius desert to find food. To do this without succumbing to the heat, these ants have to be speedy. So speedy that researchers believe they are the world's fastest ants. By using high-speed filming equipment and watching the ants in slow motion, scientists from Germany showed that the ants gallop, taking all their legs off the ground at once and by doing so were able to achieve blistering speeds of 3 kilometers per hour. Pretty quick when you're only about a centimetre in size. Speed over to that research in the Journal of Experimental Biology. To beat off competition for mates, many birds have some exaggerated traits, like the peacock's tail feathers, for example. But male white bellbirds impress their mates with sound, not looks. Have a listen. This unpleasant noise, or rather song, of the bellbird is the loudest ever documented bird call, when the volume isn't turned down for podcast purposes. The researchers from Brazil who captured the sounds also found that there's a trade-off for the bird's loudness. The noisier they are, the shorter their songs become. What's now baffling the researchers is why the females sit only four metres away while the males blast their songs directly at them, as it's close enough to cause damage to their hearing. Listen out for that research over in Current Biology. Next up, Nick, I hear you're taking us on a trip. I hope it's somewhere nice, maybe Morocco or Madrid. Oh, the Maldives. Actually, I want to take you to the Mesozoic era, the time that dinosaurs ruled the Earth. Ooh. 
This era started around 250 million years ago and ended with the dinosaur mass extinction 65 million years ago. Oh, that's great. I love dinosaurs. It'd be like Jurassic Park. Do, 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 do. Actually, this trip isn't about dinosaurs. It turns out there were plenty of other interesting creatures around at the time. Now, I always thought that the mammals that were living at the time of the dinosaurs were just small, shrew-like creatures. And indeed, that used to be the way paleontologists viewed early mammals. But now, that view is changing. Here's mammal paleontologist Joshi Lo from the University of Chicago to explain. In the recent years, there are many spectacular discoveries all across the world, but especially in China, because these fossils are so complete, we get a much better understanding now about how do they move around, how did they live their life, and we generally know their anatomy a lot better. A lot of these Chinese fossils were formed due to volcanic eruptions covering the animals in ash, so they're really well preserved. Some of them even have traces of fur and internal organs. These intact fossils are showing paleontologists that Mesozoic mammals were far more diverse than previously thought. Take the Haramayids, for instance. There's whole skeletal features showed us many of the Haramayids are actually living on the trees. They have this very modern tree-living mammal-like skeletons, and some of the actually are preserved with skin membranes exactly like the modern gliders. So we knew that uh, these haramides not only climbed the tree, they actually took off from the tree and gliding. And there weren't just 160 million-year-old mammals that looked like flying squirrels. There have also been findings of mole-like burrows and small platypus-like swimmers. From among this diversity of recently found fossils, Steve Bruzzate, a vertebrate paleontologist from the University of Edinburgh, told me about his favourite. There's the mammal Repenomanus, which is one that was, as far as we know, one of the very, very largest mammals that lived with the dinosaurs, about the size of a badger or so, found with the bones of a little baby dinosaur in its stomach. So this was a mammal that actually ate dinosaurs, which completely turns the table on that classic story of dinosaurs being the ones that were stepping all over the little mammals. This diversity is overturning a prevalent thought in paleontology, which suggested that while dinosaurs were present, mammals couldn't diversify too much, as the dinosaurs were too dominant in the ecosystem, occupying nearly all of the ecological niches. The old stereotype was that mammals were there, but they just were not very interesting. But now we know that not only were mammals there, but they were making a real statement. They were incredibly diverse. They were living in many different habitats. So there was an enormous amount of diversity of behavior. There was a big diversity of diets. And so mammals were playing key roles in ecosystems during the time of the dinosaurs. And that was a really unexpected thing. It also appears that mammals of this period were not only diverse, they were also bigger than we once thought. Like the dino-eating Repenomamus you heard about earlier, which is thought to have weighed around 15 kilograms, like a medium-sized dog. Quite unlike my thought of the small shrew-type creatures. 
Some of these recently discovered fossils are also starting to reveal how the very first mammals evolved from reptiles. Here's Lua again. Mammals are very different from other vertebrates because we have very interesting biological adaptations. For example, we chew food. After we chew food, we can swallow the chewed down food in small quantities in a very polite way. Instead of eating our prey whole chunk at a time, like crocodiles. And this very interesting way of feeding allow us to diversify in a tremendously different way from other non-mammalian vertebrates. What we have discovered recently is we discovered the earliest modern mammal-like hyoid bones, little tiny bones in our throat, around our Adam's apple. In modern mammals, the hyoid bones are crucial for sustaining our way of swallowing and for sustaining our function to drink the fluids. In babies, this hyoid structure made it possible for us to suckle mother's milk. These 165 million-year-old throat bones from a bowl-like creature called Microdecodon gossalis are not the only fossils revealing more about mammals' emergence. Mammals also have tiny ear bones that have allowed them to develop a keen sense of hearing. These evolved from reptiles' jaws, and recently a fossil has been found that shows an in-between stage, not quite a jaw and not quite an ear, in a rat-like creature that lived 120 million years ago called Lyoconodon. Our understanding of mammals has certainly expanded over the past few decades, but many questions still remain. Lua, for example, wants to know if these ancient mammals laid eggs, like platypuses, or whether the majority gave birth to live young. And Steve would like to know what happened after the dinosaur's extinction to answer how mammals became some of the largest and most dominant animals on Earth today. In the end, there are a plethora of new mammal discoveries that are redefining the mammalian family tree, and Steve thinks, in the next Jurassic Park film, maybe throwing some mammals in there wouldn't be so bad. I would love to see (laughs) a Hollywood film about uh, the prehistoric past that has some of these funky new Mesozoic mammals in it. I think they would be endearing little characters. I think everybody would be cheering them along because they would be cheering along us. We would be cheering along us. These are our ancestors, our close cousins. That was Steve Bruzzatti from the University of Edinburgh here in the UK. You also heard from Jushi Lo from the University of Chicago in the US. If you want to find out more about early mammals, then you can head over to nature.com news to find a feature all about them. Finally on the show this week, it's time for the news chat and joining us once again is Heidi Ledford, senior reporter here at Nature. Heidi, thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks. In addition to being our senior reporter here, you're also our go-to CRISPR person and in the news (laughs) chat this week, we've got a couple of CRISPR-related stories. For our first one, listeners may remember that back in June, a Russian scientist declared that he was intending to create gene-edited babies using CRISPR. 
And now there seems to be a new development in this. Yeah, well, so that scientist, Dennis Rebrikov, has said that he is pursuing his project. Now, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily, you know, creating gene-edited babies just yet. Um, but he is working with human embryos in the lab to try to learn more about um, the particular target that he's chosen, which is a gene involved in deafness. And what specifically is he doing in relation to deafness? So he plans to edit uh, mutations that sometimes occur in a gene called GJB2. People who have two copies of a mutated GJB2 often have difficulty with hearing. And sometimes, sometimes they can be helped with a hearing aid or a cochlear implant. But it is a mutation associated with deafness. So he's looking to modify these genes in humans. But he's a bit different from her, Jing Kuei, who CRISPR edited humans before as he's waiting for permission. Yeah, that's right. So he has said he's not going to go forward with the plans and actually implant an edited embryo until he gets permission from the Ministry of Health of the Russian Federation. And a little while ago, the Ministry of Health said they are not ready to give that permission yet. So we would hope and expect that it's not going to happen anytime soon. But he is clearly sort of laying plans to be ready if that permission does come through. And what's been the response from scientists and ethicists about him pushing this forward? I think a fair amount of shock and horror. I think, you know, the the incident in China last year, He Jiankui um, and his experiments with embryos, that was pretty widely condemned, I would say, by the scientific community. And many, most scientists would agree that the technology is not ready yet. Never mind the the social and ethical discussions that need to be held, you know, around this kind of use of gene editing. Uh, the technology itself is even not ready. Well, Nature actually had an opportunity to talk to Rebikov. What sort of things did he say? Well, you know, our reporter asked him about some of the technical concerns that scientists have, such as, um, you know, the possibility of generating off-target mutations in, at sites that he didn't necessarily mean to edit. Um, and I think he acknowledged, you know, that that may be a concern, but he feels that his technique is much safer than the one that was used by Hu Jiankui. And he did also sort of explain that he is open to communication about his plans, which was something I think with Hu Jiankui, Part of the the shock of that was, you know, it just sort of seemed to come out of nowhere. All of a sudden, one day, you find out um, that this has already happened and these children have already been born. I at least have some hope that we'll know a bit more about what Rebrikov is doing ahead of time. But it is also clear, I guess, from his answers that he feels this is going to happen and it is going to go forward at some point. Um, And it's just sort of inevitable and he's going to be ready to go. Well, sticking with gene editing for the time being, there's also another story about a new type of gene editing technology, this prime editing. Heidi, what can you tell me about this? Oh, it's a really neat system. It was developed in David Liu's lab at the Broad Institute in, in Massachusetts, and it's, uh, it's a modified version of CRISPR, really. So it's got some of the components that we may be familiar with by now. But basically what it does is it allows researchers to edit genes in a much more reliable way. So, so how does it compare to the existing CRISPR technologies? How is it more reliable? Yeah, I think many researchers will know this, but I think a lot of people who hear about CRISPR in the media may not be aware of the fact that it is pretty darn unreliable. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to make a specific change in a gene, oftentimes you're not going to get that specific change every single time in every single cell that you try to edit. So t- regular CRISPR as a biological technique really doesn't edit the genes. All it does is it uses an enzyme that makes a a cut in the DNA and both strands of the DNA at a specific site, and you can tell it where to cut. So that's really nifty. At that point, you're just relying on the cell's DNA repair 
to fix that break. And because that DNA repair tends to make mistakes, you might get uh, you know a few extra DNA letters thrown in or a few extra taken out. You might, if you're lucky, uh, be able to actually provide a template and insert a new sequence in, at that site. But often the efficiency of that is really low. So even though we talk about CRISPR as, as being this amazing tool that allows researchers to make changes at will, in fact, it, it can be pretty frustrating sometimes to work with. And when you're thinking about clinical applications, that becomes really important. And this new technology, it sort of gets over some of these problems. How, how does it work? Yeah, so this new technology doesn't rely on the DNA repair systems inside the cell to make the edits. Um, so instead, what it does, is it still uses this Cas9 enzyme um, to target a specific location in the genome. But then once it gets there, it, it just breaks one strand, and it allows another enzyme that's been tacked onto it, called reverse transcriptase, to then write in a new sequence at that site. Um, and then there's, you know, there's some other things that happen at that point. But what this means is that now you can control much better than you could before what happens at that site that you want to edit. And you can insert something, a few letters. You can delete a few letters. You can put in a totally new set of letters. You can change just one letter and so on. So it's it's a very versatile tool. But I think, I think really what researchers are really going to love is that you can predict finally what you're going to get when you do your edit. And with this ability to predict what you're going to get, what are the potential applications for it? I think the first thing that comes to my mind, I guess, is really the the human therapy applications because it's long been a concern about how how can you assess the safety of a therapy if you get this mix of different edits. You know, you, the regulators are going to want to know what the effect of each edit is, and so there's a certain amount of uncertainty that would just be wrapped into that whole process. Um, so if you can instead say, when I use this therapy, we will get this change at this site, that becomes a much more straightforward therapy to evaluate in terms of safety and efficacy. Presumably, researchers are quite excited about this technology. It sounds like they are. I mean, everyone I talked to said it was elegant, it was fascinating, it was exciting. Um, I spoke to someone who was at a, a meeting recently where she first heard about this at a, in a talk, and she said she ran afterwards to go see the poster. And the poster session was two hours long. She said the, the poster was just completely packed. She couldn't get to the front in the, in the two hours. You know, she had to stick around until afterwards and so on. So, um, yeah, it does seem as though there's a lot of excitement. So thinking back to our first story with a technology like this where there are less chance of off-target mutations and things occurring, do you think it will encourage people like Rebikov to perform more germline gene editing? I hope not because it's it's still not ready. And definitely this is just the first report of this particular technology, so we still don't know fully how well it works. It does look like it's more reliable. It does look like it has fewer um, off-target mutations as well. Um, that doesn't solve the problem of mosaicism, where you may have edits in some cells and not in others. Uh, it doesn't, and it certainly doesn't go anywhere near the social and ethical questions that that are raised by the thought of heritable gene editing. So I would hope it doesn't necessarily encourage people to go forward until they've had those discussions. But uh, yeah, we don't really know. Thanks, Heidi. Listeners, for more on those stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's all for this week, but if you want some science for your eyes as well as your ears, you can visit youtube.com forward slash nature video channel to find out why neuroscientists are putting tiny 3D glasses on praying mantises and hear from reporter Lizzie Gibney on that quantum supremacy story. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time.
Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a thousand new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.